Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Sean O'Dowd, general partner of Scholastic Capital. This one is very different from a lot of the conversations we usually have. Sean is a friend of mine on Twitter. I've been following what he's doing and his thesis and his investing strategy is really interesting. Basically what he is doing is he is finding homes in high value residential areas in very, very, very high-end school districts. He's then created all this tech to allow him to go buy those homes and he leases them to parents with kids who want to send their kids to the school district. They sign three-year leases and he has a whole period of about 10 to 15 years. He's raising a new fund. We talk about how he's raising the fund how he's thinking about his new relationship with his general partner, how he created all the tech for all the stuff that he's doing, how he's managing the process of acquiring all these homes in a very short period of time. It is an awesome conversation. I think he will blow you away. Please enjoy my conversation today with Sean O'Dowd. Hey, Sean, thanks for joining me on Masters of Moments. I'm really excited to kick this conversation off. Yeah, thanks for having me. I thought a really fun place to start would kind of be to dive into your background a little bit because you're in real estate now, but you kind of started on the venture side. And you were telling me this funny story where you went to go work for a company and everyone was working like 30 hours a week, which seems to be the opposite work hours and work-life balance of what you're about to embark on and what you're currently doing. (laughs) So maybe we can just like kick off kind of your background and start the conversation with this like idea that everyone's got to just work 20 hours a week for their whole (laughs) life and that's sustainable and everyone's going to win and be rich and happy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's super, super funny. So I, I started my career in big consulting. So I, I was working for Boston Consulting Group, one of the big consulting firms. Knew I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Left and joined a startup in Chicago as an employee 40 or so. I had three offers from startups. I picked the one out of three to not become a unicorn. So terrible decision making <laughs> on my part there. Terrible. But anyways, I got to this company and good people, good thesis, good what they were doing made sense, but they were very like tech forward, light hours kind of situation where like the place was a ghost town at like 4 p.m. in the afternoon and people were like strolling in at like 9, 30, 10 in the morning. It's like, all right, well, I, uh, I'm used to big consulting where I'm working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Like this feels like a quarter time job, not even a part time job for me. 
I'm going to start doing some consulting on the side because I know how to do it and I've got plenty of time. My first business was a consulting business that I was doing on the side while working this full-time job that was really a quarter or part-time job. What did you learn from Wharton, from consulting that you've been able to apply in your consulting life, whether it was even at the venture company or just in actual consulting? It's a good thought process. I I think the biggest one is simple is almost always better. I've been involved in some really just well-known, very high-profile business transactions as a consultant. I've been in the boardroom for some of the, the big deals of the past decade. And I've seen some companies that have also completely flamed out. And the ones that were overcomplicating things or we're looking at 75 different metrics and trying to optimize every little thing have consistently been the ones that haven't done well. And the guys who've done great have been the ones that are laser focused of, hey, I'm going to focus on one thing. We're going to get this one thing right. And if we do that, everything else will fall into place from there. So when you started this consulting business on the side, what were you consulting on and who were you consulting for? It was I'm kind of an exploration journey, so to speak. So I first got started in it and my my first consulting gig, consulting in air quotes there, was proofreading an email. I had a small business owner in Texas where English wasn't his first language and he was in a customer dispute and he wanted somebody whose English was their first language to proofread his email to make sure his point was conveyed. So that was that was the start. And then it started expanding out from there. And where where it landed and where where I ended up spending call it 80 to 90% of my time after a two to three year period was in one of two things. One was private equity portfolio company operations. So typically mega private equity firm acquires a company, they have six or seven reasons or, or value creation work streams that they think that they should implement to create value in the portfolio they just bought. And they bring me in post-close to basically make one, one of those work streams happen. So that was uh, pillar number one. Pillar number two was called like Fortune 500 strategy work. And, and the short answer was it's typically like a COO, SVP of strategy type individual has like a pet thesis of like, I think this could add value, but they don't have enough conviction in it yet to go spend 2 million bucks from McKinsey to do it. So they'll bring me in to do like the quick first look. And then if it actually does pan out, then they'll bring McKinsey in to do the final look. Okay. So on the first one, when you were going into those roles, what did you learn about teamwork? Because you were just kind of like thrown into a company. You didn't work for the company. What did you learn about working with other people and coming in with to an existing team? The value of learning and listening from each individual is can't, can't be understated, especially with these transactions. So a lot of the private equity firms that I was working with were New York-based or Boston-based. The typical individual who worked there went to Harvard, Wharton, Stanford, and had a very specific way of looking at the world. The portfolio companies, because I'm in the Chicago area, were very frequently Midwestern-based industrial goods manufacturing as companies with just a very different life experience of the individuals who are at the portfolio company compared to the individuals 
who are in the Boston, New York-based private equity firm. So you really needed to actually spend the time with each individual to understand them, how they were thinking about things and why they were saying the things they were saying, because they were just coming at it from completely different perspectives. And a lot of times my job was basically to play in the beginning translator between these two different perspectives. And then once everybody got to know each other better, it made it a little bit easier. But getting to know everyone and their story and, and how they think about things is rule number one for, for this kind of work. And what were the common challenges translating from you know, the factory owner, the factory CFO, CEO that stayed on to these Wharton Stanford MBAs? Two things. The, the largest from the like factory owner perspective was the this is how we've always done things viewpoint of it's always been this way. It's always worked for us. There's no reason for us to change it. And then the private equity firm guys of like, hey, like we have a business plan. We have numbers to hit. We need to hit them in a very short time period. We have to change everything immediately to get to where we want to go. So finding a way to basically put that together and get everybody excited about that journey was was the question. Every business owner in my experience, when you're acquiring a business or you somehow come into a leadership position in a company that's been around, always runs into, yeah, this is always how we've done it. Like in my company, as we've been kind of transitioning leadership and changing our culture, we constantly heard, yeah, this is how we always do it, or this is the way that we do it. And that's how we're going to do it. In some ways, I think that's like good. There's probably a reason why you do it that way. How do you know, though, when there is a better way? It's it's a tough question because it's different, I think, depending on the exact target company and the different industry. The way I've always thought about it is like key man risk. For example, I, I worked for one of the largest auto, auto OEMs, auto manufacturers in the world, and they had a very critical process in which all the cars were made in a factory internationally. They were shipped to the US. There was one person who ran what the Excel file to determine which <laughs> car serial number went to which dealership in the country. That's a really critical decision because if you send the car with the snow package to Miami, that thing's going to sit on the lot and not sell. And then they have to pay to rail it up to Boston and they got to send the, the cars with the tan seats back down to Miami. Anyways, one Excel file and one guy in the entire company who knew how to run it because it was just this absolute monstrosity of an Excel file. That's significant key man risk. Like there has to be a better way in that world because number one, you're wasting a ton of money sending cars in places you shouldn't be sending it to. But number two, if this guy leaves and you've got a whole batch of cars coming over in the next month, <laughs> there's nothing you can do in that scenario. So I, I key man risk and redundancy is basically the first thing that I look for. And that one experience really resonated with me of like, hey, there's there's got to be something there's got to be something better than this. <laughs> it's every single like, business owner starts with an Excel file. And by the way, that Excel file is probably on that guy's desktop. You know, it wasn't in yep. Dropbox or in the cloud, right? <laughs> There's only one version of that thing. I remember before we did Juniper Square for all our investors, we were tracking all the investors in an Excel file or in multiple Excel files. And one or two people know how to use it. There was, you know, always going to be mistakes or problems. It's funny how everyone starts out when, well, we're going to jump ahead, but I guess I want to ask this though, as you're now building your own company, 
Are there certain things that you're way more aware of where you're like, we could start it this way. It's going to be easier. It's going to be cheaper. But I know in five years, I'm going to switch to some other way. Like Before we get into like what you're doing now, what are some of those things you're thinking about based on your experience? Yeah, people don't think about it much, but the importance of like the back office of finance, HR being perfectly airtight and done correctly is extremely important. And screwing that up in the beginning gives you just a huge headache down the line to try to fix that. So you actually mentioned something, Juniper Square, like we are basically putting all of our fund fees to software like Juniper Square into a very expensive fund administration team because those back office things matter. And we would we would way rather make nothing on the management fees and instead put the money into highly important things than try to take a little bit of margin and go cheap on it and then and get in trouble with it, which is, it's I think, an important thing that we, we've learned from advice from advisors that we've gotten. Side note, I think that's a great idea. We use some of their fund administration services, but I think you should bill that out as a separate line item to your investors and then charge the management fee on top of that. Because most places, in addition to their back office accounting, also hire a third-party fund administrator. So I think you'd have some cover there, but we'll get to that. Going back to the consulting side, when these private equity firms would kind of figure out these value streams, as you put it, what were the most common ways some of those went right? And what were the most common ways some of those went wrong? Really good question. The places that went really well were, for lack of better words, non-people related. And the places where they went poorly were people related. So for example, like I, I worked on a makeout, makeup carve-out deal. It was a multi-billion dollar transaction. I was carving out a makeup brand from a larger holding company. And there were just an absolute ton of independent vendors and suppliers. And there was like a consolidation effort to go from 70 some suppliers and vendors down to like a handful. That went extremely well. There was a lot of savings that came into play because you were getting more volume with each individual vendor. You can get discounts as a result from that. That was pretty easy to do. There was a lot of work to be done, but fairly easy. I've also worked in a transaction where there was a plant relocation where um, completely different industry, industrial goods, aerospace and defense supplier, where they were shutting down a plant in one location, California, because it was very difficult to do business there. It was very expensive. And they were moving it to a different part of the country. Makes a lot of sense on paper, moving from California to an easier state to do business. But that involved needing to move 70, 80 employees. You had to send a lot of very custom-made, expensive lines, manufacturing lines across state lines. That was a complete mess because there's a lot of people involved in that. There was a lot of family involved with that. And what looks like really quick and easy, and they're both the same, they're right next to each other on an Excel spreadsheet as, oh, this is going to save us 10 million and this is going to save us 20 million. Very difficult to put into practice based on basically the people that were involved in that. How do you think about A players and B players and building a team and kind of the mix of those? I was reading uh, the new Elon Musk book that came out and it seems like he's always trying to find these A players, like the most hardcore people. And 
I've also read other stuff that's like, you can't just have a team of all superstars because they're just going to kill each other. What have, <laughs> what have you seen? I think the concept of exclusively A players is, is pretty idealistic, but not realistic. In a lot of situations, you just you need the work to get done. And it's rather you would rather have a B player do an 85% job than it be 0% done because you don't have the A player in the seat. Or you do have an A player who's so strapped and is doing so much that they they just can't get to that item because they're doing all this other stuff. I think the exception that comes into play there, though, is for like mission critical roles. Some roles you just you have to have the A player in that seat. And that role can completely depend upon what industry we're talking about here and and the exact function of that role in that industry. But for the large perspective, like I obviously want to hire all of the A players you possibly can, but if you have to hire a B player, I don't think it's the the end-all be-all of the world unless we're talking about those mission-critical situations and roles. So let's move into real estate. You're doing the consulting thing And instead of maybe wanting to buy small businesses, you get an idea to buy some real estate. Talk to me about that decision. Yeah. So real estate has always been a a when, not if for for me and for my wife, actually. We... I'm in the Chicago area. I was born in this area, but I, I moved 22 times before I ended up going to Wharton. So I, I bounced around all over the place. And it was a fun, fun experience growing up just because I was always the new kid at school. So I've got to meet a lot of really cool people in the process. But moving all around, I got really interested in real estate because we were just constantly looking for new places to live. It became a game. So my mom and I would drive down the street and see an open house sign and just, let's go, let's go take a look at it. Fun, why not? And what was really fortunate about the consulting business is I, I was making a pretty good income at, at BCG. When I left, my income tripled overnight, basically, with the, the independent consulting world, which got to the point where I, I had a lot of disposable cash to start buying property. And my wife has always wanted to be in real estate as well. So it just it made sense for us at the time to, to start buying. And we we kind of jumped in, jumped in and, and basically started just shooting offers out as quickly as possible. So, okay. Well, I don't know. I guess when you were growing up, moving all around, were there things that you held on to about real estate or were there ideas that you thought about how you were going to invest into real estate once you had money? Or did you just know that I want to be in real estate. I don't know what real estate it's going to be, but it's got to be real estate. I So I did have some preconceived notions jumping in. I thought multifamily was awesome. I just, I, I really like the idea of these these big, awesome, incredible multifamily buildings. I There was one building really cl- in Philadelphia, really close to campus that I just was like, that's the coolest building of all time. I want to own that building someday. And then the developer for it actually came and talked to one of my classes one of the days. And I was like, that is so cool. I want to be you. This is the most amazing thing ever. So when we when we first started buying real estate, we started buying multifamily. We, we obviously couldn't afford anything like that. So we were buying six units, seven units, and like C minus locations and C minus assets. But it, the, the thought process was always multifamily because it was, hey, people, people need places to live and multifamily gives you economies of scale from one roof and all of that. Those, those common one-liners thrown out about it. Who is the real estate developer? I'm from Philadelphia, so. Oh, I'm no curious. kidding. Oh, geez. 
I actually don't know his name. Tall guy with glasses. Building was 3737 Chestnut. Interesting. All right. I got to go find find out who that is. So on your first deal, how did you go about finding it, doing it? Like break that whole thing down because doing your first real estate deal, you always remember, but it's always also the most scary. It was just a litany of errors across the board. (laughs) So my my wife actually found it. At the time, she wasn't even my wife. She was my fiance. She was actually my girlfriend. And it was in East Moline, Illinois. We found it on, she found it on Zillow. And it just seemed like a really awesome deal. It was a seven unit property for $150,000. And we were like, all right, 20 grand a door, fantastic property. I had to call the lender behind her back to say, hey, I just purchased an engagement ring that she doesn't know about yet. Um, (laughs) So when you see in my personal financial statement, a big drop from a couple of months ago, like that's what it was, nothing to worry about. And it was it was interesting. We, we thought we knew what we were doing. We had spent a lot of time studying and researching beforehand. We made sure to get an inspection. We, we talked with all the different local vendors. We found a great property management company. But there was just things that we, we missed in the process. Like the previous owner couldn't produce the leases for the property which we were like, oh, that's just an honest mistake. But he couldn't <laughs> produce the leases, so that should have been a warning sign for us. But yeah, so we we closed on the thing and we just promptly got crushed every single month. And it was really two things. One was it was a low-priced property with a high management burden. So the property management company was doing great because they were placing a new tenant every 60 to 90 days and they were taking the first month's rent with every placement. So they were doing great. And then number two, it was the Quad Cities area is is actually a surprisingly large area. There's a lot of rental units in that area. And our units were competing against all of the other units out there. There was nothing unique. There was no competitive advantage to our property. It was just one of a whole pile of options. So we we were having tenants come in and out because it just there was no reason why they wanted to be at ours versus any other property. And what happened to that deal? We we got out of that as quickly as we could. <laughs> we we sold um, we put it on the market. I think eight nine months after we bought it, we sold it to another investor who's an out of state investor, and then we actually hadn't learned our lesson. So in the in that year process, we had bought a six unit in Wisconsin similar story. And then we we also sold that six unit as well, also to an out-of-state investor. And that was that was actually a really interesting learning learning process for me, especially if we're talking about like this these more retail level buildings, six, seven unit buildings. There's real estate investors everywhere. And if the local investors are passing on the two hundred thousand dollar building that they could very easily afford, then they know something you don't and you as an out-of-state buyer should not be buying that property. That's a good lesson. I I always wonder, even on the commercial side, coming into a new deal, if you know the other players in the market, if that's a reason not to do the deal, like what do they know that that you don't? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? And then we can kind of talk about you being new into other markets and how you're mitigating that risk as well. Yeah, totally. So we we sold all those properties and 
went back to basics, basically, from a consulting perspective. There's a consulting phrase called right to win, which is like, why why does one product have a right to win versus the other? Like, what is Coke's right to win against Pepsi? Why would people choose Coke over Pepsi? And we realized that was our big mistake. Like, there was no reason why a tenant in East Moline would pick our building compared to any of the other ones out there. So we said, okay, we want to buy property that has a right to win great tenants, a reason why great tenants would pick ours compared to anything else. And what we landed on and realized was school district. We said, hey, if we're buying really fantastic homes in hyperly, very high-end school districts where there's a lot of demand to live there because it's a great school district and there's no supply because these zip codes are all 90 plus percent owner-occupied because they're great school districts, you suddenly have a really unique product on the marketplace. It's the only rental home. And if you want your kids to go to that high school, that's the only rental option in town. So we completely pivoted, bought a home, thought it made sense, but wanted to test it out. Blew our socks off with with how well it did. We got 70 people reaching out the first day. 100% of tenants wanted three-year leases. It's a great. So it turned out great. So we bought another one and then another one and then another one and then another one and got to the point where we felt really strong conviction of like, hey, this thesis is working. So now I've got a partner and we're we're building a fund around that thesis of single family homes and, and hyper elite high school districts. Okay. Very simple thesis. I love it. How do you know what's a good school district? How do you figure that out? Yeah. So there's two parts to it. There's quantitative and qualitative. And like the quantitative part is the easy part. There's a bunch of different resources and data sets. There's the, there's great schools, for example, that's one we have to check because that's the one that Zillow and the other ones are pulling in. We've got a data set actually that shows what percent of a high school graduating class goes on to an Ivy League school or like Ivy equivalent. We'll look at owner occupancy data, for example. That's also really important for us. But that's just the quantitative stuff. That's that's only part of the equation. The part that matters more is actually the qualitative, which is people believe it's the best high school district in the area, which does not actually always match up with the quantitative. And you need them both to be saying the exact same thing. And that is a lot of time on the ground and boots on the ground with with the people who are there and people in that area of talking with them talking with people and parents at the park, where are they sending their kids? Where do they want to go? That's calling local schools. That's calling local agents, dropping by to see local schools and agents to really get that perception to match the what the quantitative data is saying. And then only when you found them both hitting, does it, does it make sense to actually explore that as an investment opportunity? So do you have a list on your wall of target markets, target cities, target regions? Like, my, like How do you think about putting all the data and visualizing it. Yep. So we we do have a have a list on the wall. It actually is legitimately on the wall. A different room otherwise <laughs> I'd show you. I can send you a picture later. But send we, me a picture. We'll put it in the notes. We'll blur it. it all okay, out. Okay, sweet. Yeah. So we we do we do have a list and we are exclusively focused upper Midwest. So that's actually kind of the other layer layer onto this is we were initially looking at this strategy we tested it here in the Chicago area. We were looking at a national and we were like, okay, like Palo Alto, that fits what we're looking for. Greenwich, Connecticut fits what we're looking for. Pinecrest, Miami fits what we're looking for. Like th- these sorts of areas where like people recognize, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know that area. That's a good spot. But the kind of the interesting thing that 
and this is also kind of from the consulting side of things, they teach you to think about it from begin with the end in mind and basically reverse engineer the outcome you're looking for. So we're building this fund, but investors in the fund are going to want their money back down the line. So I tapped the Wharton Network and I called a bunch of people who I knew from school who now work at the single family house funds that own 20, 30,000 plus houses and said, hey, we're building this. We're going to try to sell it to you in 10 to 15 years. Give us your buy box. Give us where you want these homes to be located. And the consistent answer we got back from all of them was put the homes in the upper Midwest if you're going to do this strategy. So now we're doing elite homes, upper Midwest. So our all of that to say, our photo is basically a crop shot of the upper Midwest with little dots all over the place. I love it. In these markets, like talk to me about what the supply typically looks like. Is it that most of the houses are for sale and most of the rentals are apartment buildings? That's right. So owner occupancy rates are, are 90% or higher. Median purchase price is no lower than 800. Some of them are, are well over a million dollars for median purchase price. And then the, the rental supply, you typically only see one, maybe two homes on the rental market over a 12 month period. Like you, there just isn't any rentals to your point. The rental supply is almost exclusively apartment buildings from like the fifties or sixties that were like one beds, one baths. I mean, it's a not great thing for the country as a whole, but the residents in these areas tend to be like the final boss of NIMBY where they're like, I am not going to allow any multifamily construction in my very nice neighborhood that I paid $1.5 million for the median house here. And like, absolutely not. So the, these areas literally haven't had any development. So they're, they're not very accessible to somebody who wants to rent, but cannot afford to, to buy. Okay. So from a business plan standpoint, how much of the business plan revolves around value add? Hmm. Almost none, which is... I like that too. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of value to doing value add. We just almost can't do it with this strategy because we have just this super tight window. People with kids, people who are moving for their kids to be in this school move between May and July 30th. And that's that's it. That's when they're moving between the school year. So we we can't risk buying 30 homes in a summer and having... 20 of them get delayed because construction delays. And then school starts September 1st, but the home isn't done until October. We missed our window to get that tenant. So it's, it, I would love to do value add, but we almost can't without, without running pretty, pretty significant risk about occupancy. Okay, so if you were to buy a house, let's say in February or March, you're concerned about the hold period and the occupancy or the vacancy risk over that time while you're maybe doing some value add to then have it ready by the summer? We we could do February, March and do and buy a little bit earlier. It's something that we've we've looked into and have thought about for for later years of the fund. In the beginning, we're gonna we're gonna start with basically rent ready, buy it at nine the 9 a.m. closing slot and then get it on the rental market at eleven we could potentially do some of those earlier buys down the line. We just, we'd hold it on our books a little bit longer before we'd be able to get it rented. But it, it's something we could potentially do down the line. The cool thing about your strategy is 
it opens up a lot of opportunity. If you're only looking for value add, there might only be a few houses in that neighborhood, in that market that could be value add. Whereas market rate, everyone wants to sell their house for market rate. And a lot of these people are probably maintaining their houses. So what are you looking at from like a box? Like what does this house have to look like? You found the best school district, house comes up on the market. What are you looking for? Yeah, so we've got we've got a bunch of different things that we're looking for. It's either 16 or 17 different like numerical things we're looking for. Some of them are ours, some of them are from the bigger funds because we're we're building for that sale. So we've got minimums like minimally three bed, minimally one and a half bath, minimum twelve hundred square feet. And then we have some those are kind of the basic ones. Then we have some more like fun ones. My favorite is no double yellow lines. We we don't want to buy the house on a street that's got double yellow lines because the street's too fast. It's got to be 25 mile an hour speed limit or less. So it's a neighborhood. It's a cul-de-sac. It's where you want your kids to grow up. No high capacity power lines within 500 yards. That's from the funds. They don't want it. So we can't buy it. Similarly, no pools. They don't want a home with a pool. So we can't buy a home with a pool either. And then there's just a bunch of other interesting ones from like a, a distance proximity perspective. We don't want to be within a quarter mile of any one of the schools because traffic jam in the morning trying to get to the school is very difficult. But we also don't want to be too far away from the school where it's, it's people want to be closer to the school because that's what they want to be there. So there's almost like a little bit of like a geographic donut where we want to be relative to the, the location of the school. And then we've got minimums from like rental yields and cap rates and all that. But there's there's a bunch of different stuff that we're looking for. Are these furnished or unfurnished? Unfurnished. You keep mentioning funds. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but <laughs> clearly you're thinking about some sort of an exit. So what are these funds that you're talking about and why does it matter? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, like we're, we're putting a very significant amount of our money into the fund. My co-GP is also putting a very significant amount of his money into the fund. But the vast majority of it is, is coming from investors who are, who are entrusting us with their money. And it would be short-sighted of us to take their money and say, hey, we're going to do something with it if we haven't kind of fully mapped out and thought through what the return is actually going to look like for them and, and what is a realistic realistic growth trajectory for that. So we we really wanted to make sure we, we kind of focused on that back end and, and figured out what a potential sale of the portfolio could look like. So when an investor says, hey, what are you what are you doing with my money? When do you think I could get it back? We want to be able to have like a, here's what we're thinking we're going to do and to be a, a well thought out answer. Of course, who knows, subject to change. Like there's there's a million different things that could, ha- could happen between now and then. But we want to at least have an answer that's had a lot of thought put into it first. And what's the answer? The answer is, well, <laughs> there's a bunch of different components to it, but we're expecting a 10 to 12 year hold period before we exit to, to one of the larger funds. We are assuming, because we don't want to play the interest rate prediction game, we are assuming nothing changes in interest rates. We're not assuming any drop in refinance. If it happens, we'll do it. But we're not assuming that in our model. We're, and then we're assuming a, a very small amount of cap rate compression. We're just assembling this portfolio for that sale. You're talking about single family rental funds. And I think this is somewhat of a new phenomenon, probably post 2011. You spent a lot of time with these folks. What do you know about them? What is their strategy? And why aren't they just going to 
copy exactly what you're doing or why can't they do exactly what you're doing? Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question. You're right there. It's a relatively new phenomenon. These these funds that are buying up a lot of homes, they have gotten a lot of that press as being significant obstacle to housing affordability. That's not technically accurate. They they own a very small percent of the single family homes in the country and a very small percent of the rentals. Most rentals are owned by mom and pops. Their strategy and game has been kind of interesting over the past couple of years. The biggest challenge in single family is operations and the logistics of it. Like in multifamily, you get everything concentrated on a single site. You're, it's a lot easier to operationalize from that perspective. And this is coming from a guy who's done PE portfolio ops. Like that is a lot easier than single family. If you're, if you're lucky, you can buy a build for rent community where you've got all of the homes within a half mile geographic area. But if you're talking about, say, Tricon, who owns 30,000 plus homes spread across the country, that is a very significant operational challenge. So it's their whole business model is, is managing that ops in terms of why they can't do exactly what we're doing now. They, they honestly very well could. It's. From what we have learned from our conversations with them is because their business is already complex enough, they don't typically want to be in the assembling a portfolio game. They would rather buy 250 homes already bundled for them as one package than piecemeal pick up homes here and there and then figure out the ops together as they as they piecemeal at them in. A hundred percent. It makes total sense. We have certain private equity partners that have gotten so big they won't even look at deals with us under a certain threshold amount because they have all this capital anyways, they have to put it out. It's just basically taking away resources. The fund, okay, is an awesome option. Have you thought of any other options like, I don't know, creating your own REIT eventually where it's more of a longer term hold vehicle or just selling them off individually? Yeah, we, you know, we actually had, we had a very wealthy individual from Twitter, actually, who reached out to us and floated a very significant check if we took it under the condition of we never sell the portfolio because he wanted to leave his share in the in the fund to his kids so they can step up into into that, which we we didn't end up taking from a and it didn't make sense for for both us and him at the end of the day, but this is potentially something that could could be interesting, I'm, I'm like a REIT type structure down the line. We'll we'll see. On the selling individually side of things, definitely something we could do as well. We've structured it with our lender in a way that we could piecemeal them out if we so chose. It would it would just depend on on market conditions and if we think we could get a premium for the the package of the homes. It's interesting. I'm I'm so I'm super lucky. My partner is a funds attorney, my co GP. So he's kind of seen the entire world of funds because he's written most of them. <laughs> And we've we've structured ours for like ultimate flexibility. I mean, we're we're technically what's called an open-ended fund where we could we could choose to sell everything at year eight, 10, 12, or 15, depending on market conditions, rather than like a forced sale at 10 years because it's a close end to 10-year fund. So it's it's set up for flexibility, but hopefully we can use that flexibility to kind of time time things a little bit in the most opportune way. <laughs> We're going to get to the fund structure. Let's talk about your co-GP. You first started with your wife as your partner. That seems like a good choice, easy. How, how did you think about picking a partner for a new venture? That That's a really interesting question because I, I honestly wasn't 
thinking about it. I didn't put a ton of thought into how I was going to have a process and then look for certain things or anything like that. What actually what happened with with me and him is he is an investment funds attorney. He's on Twitter, strip mall guy. He's strip mall guy's attorney. Strip mall, strip mall guys on Twitter. You're on Twitter. We're all on Twitter. Twitter's so for those that don't know, you got to get on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. So he like he tweeted about how this like amazing attorney who graduated like number two at Columbia like joined Twitter and does investment funds for real estate. And I was like, I'm putting together a fund. Like I'd be silly not to talk to this guy. So I reached out to him. We had a conversation, and he followed up with me afterwards on his personal email and was like, Hey. I love this idea. Do you want to just grab a virtual coffee sometime and just kind of chat? And it compounded from there to the point of then we started flying to visit each other and really got to know each other super well, our families, kids, parents, the whole nine yards. And it got to the point where we just had a, a ton of trust built up and we have a very complimentary skill set where it, it made a lot of sense for us to do this together. But it was completely organic. There was no like plan or process going in of like how how would I think about it? How did you evaluate what he would do versus what you would do? And how did you guys kind of agree on whatever the constitution or the norms and all that kind of stuff? It was almost like a very natural process in the beginning because we when we first got started, he we started sketching out the legal docs and he has spent his career at one of the the very big, fancy, very expensive, big law firms. So we were walking through the legal doc, like template really, and we would get to different points and we would talk through how we would want to structure ours. But as part of that legal document structuring process, we were also talking through, okay, for this element of our of our fund constitution, how we're going to think about it, like this is going to be in Sean's wheelhouse or this one is going to be in Michael's wheelhouse. And we were as we were creating the document, we were divvying out work depending on on who it made the most sense to do so. Like on my side, for example, like acquisitions and, and operations is just a very logical fit for me. I've been doing the acquisitions for our existing portfolio and I have the PE operational experience. On his side, investor relations, like he fills out sub docs for billion dollar pension funds and is regularly intermediaries between those big funds and the big pension funds they're allocating. Like he's a much more logical fit than I am on the investor relations side of things. So it just kind of naturally worked out that way. But the, the fund constitution was really good forcing mechanism. In terms of starting the business, what surprised you most about starting the business and kind of seeding this fund and going through the initial fund process? The length of time it takes to to put this together and to think through it. So we we first started working on this early 2023, the like winter 2023. And because we've got this very short time window and where we have to buy in the summer, I was like, oh, we've got plenty of time. We're going to bang out this legal docs like two <laughs> weeks. We're going to start raising. We're going to start buying homes summer 2023. That's now September 14th and summer's over. School has started. We haven't bought any home homes because the 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 creation process is lengthy because you're you're putting together a very large legal contract, both between us, but also between us and our investors. So that definitely surprised me because I, I thought we would be managing homes right now rather than getting ready to manage homes in summer 2024. So 
if you miss the window, how are you kind of managing the PL and the business if you're going to now wait a whole year almost to start acquiring? Um, we're, we're in a good spot, fortunately. So we're, we're technically structured as a rolling fund. So investors are signing on and can sign on their sub docs at any point. We had investors sign on this morning, actually, but no capital is called. So our, our fund admin team is, is sitting on their commitments until next summer. And then once the capital clock is called, the IRR clock starts ticking and all of that. So we're, we're all kind of just in a holding game waiting for, for next summer. And how did you structure the economic terms of the fund? What do those look like? Because that's always a big debate on Twitter. If your hold period's like 10 to 15 years, are you crystallizing a promote? Like, well, what do these terms look like? Yeah, we we got a lot of different advice on this and we're, we're super lucky. We have a, a couple like really awesome advisors to the fund who own a piece of the GP, some, some well-known Twitter guys actually. So we, we got a lot of advice on that. We, at the end of the day, simplified as much as we could. So it's an 8% pref. And then we have two different classes of investors, class A and class B. For the class A guys, it's 80-20 over the, the 8%. For the class B guys, it's 75-25 over the 8%. So how do you break up the classes? How does that work? Is it based on capital commitment? Yeah, so it's capital commitment and time of commitment. So it's structured for the individuals who are part of the first 5 million in. They're class A investors. They get class A shares of the fund. Or if they come in at $500,000 or more, they come in as class A investors. Oh, I like that. That's a good setup, especially for an open fund. That is cool. So with an open fund, people can't redeem, right? They're kind of in but you can continuously accept new investors at a certain value. Is that how it works? Kind of. So they, they actually can redeem after a five-year period, but it's it's super interesting in the way it's... This is why it's so great having an attorney as a partner. Uh, yeah, um, the guy could figure everything out and you don't have to pay for it. It was fantastic. Yeah, I... I at some point, I want to ask him like what the legal bill would have been if he wasn't a partner, but it, I'm sure it would have been huge. But the, so the way it basically works is investors are coming in and they're purchasing shares in the fund, either class A or class B. With their initial investment, the shares start at $1,000 a piece of initial issue. What happens is as we will buy homes through the next summer, then we'll raise again for summer 2025, what will happen is we'll accept commitments and then shares will get repriced based off of NAV at the moment of reprice. Let's say it's $1,100 to make the math easy. We'll issue new shares at $1,100 for those new investors to buy in. So we'll basically just reissue and issue more shares as we go on. And then when an investor wants to withdraw, we basically purchase those shares back from them at the price of NAV at the date of their withdrawal request. Ooh, so, all right, this is cool. I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit because this is a super interesting structure and, and we don't often see it. So if you're not selling assets, let's just say you just are buying and you're holding and you're cash flowing. Are you doing appraisals on these assets or are you making a fair market assessment to generate the NAV and the value? Yeah, so we are, we're, there's a whole process where we where we do it. But from a like NAV reassessment perspective, especially at like the date of NAV reassessment, we're getting third-party appraisals on the homes to make sure it's it's the most accurate, most fair pricing for what the home is actually worth. We will have on like a, a daily running basis an estimate of NAV because 
there's so many of these automated like house forecasting softwares out there these days where we can say we think it's roughly XYZ and we'll be able to share with our investors in their in their monthly update. Hey, we think it's roughly thousand one hundred dollars a share right now. But on the actual the actual reprice day, we'll be able to say the appraisal for one two three Main Street was five twenty five for two three four Apple Tree it was five seventy five and then we'll be able to reprice it accurately down down to the penny I guess on what the true value is based off a third party professional. And the cool thing is because I've known this and we're we've gotten to this point now but we certainly weren't like this before is you can essentially. A, calculate an investor's return, whatever you want, live, quarterly, monthly, but they can kind of know the value. But then you can actually calculate your own waterfall, which is important for you guys to also know as GP. So that was definitely something that we kind of didn't really focus on earlier and didn't appreciate. But investors, in addition to getting cash flow, they love to see what the value is. And if you can give a good faith estimate or get a third party appraisal and show kind of that unrealized gain, it goes a long way to raising additional capital and making people feel good because private investing is very, you know, difficult to mark. That's really good to know. That's a really good tip. And we, we've been planning on doing monthly updates because we're going to do monthly distributions. We weren't totally sure about if we should be putting like a monthly mark estimate in because it would be, it would be estimated, but that's a really good tip. So we can we can put that in. Okay, so that's another one. Monthly distributions. I do quarterly distributions. How are you solving for monthly distributions? That's a lot of like check pumping. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. Two elements are him. So one is our fund admin team. We we're working with a team um, in North Carolina called Fleming that can can facilitate the monthly distributions. So they're going to be extremely helpful to do a lot of the heavy lifting there. The other element to it though is because we are signing all of our tenants on three-year leases. We just have a little bit more security in our cash flow planning compared to a standard 12-month single-family lease, which just gives us a little bit more of a buffer where, where we can be confident to send out monthly distributions as a result. All right, we're gonna just stick on the fun side because I think this is super interesting how this whole thing is rolling out. So how are you building a team and thinking about a team? because Theoretically, like during the year, you need a bunch of accountants, maybe they're outsourced, maybe they work for you, and you need asset managers to deal with problems as they arise, but you don't really need acquisitions people. So how are you flexing, growing, building a team, or are you automating any of this stuff? Because you've got to acquire a lot of houses in a short period of time. Yeah, it's, that's, you're, you're exactly right. So it's a, the calendar here is so interesting because you're heavy on acquisitions for a very short period of time, and then you're very heavy on everything else the rest of the year. So I hope you don't like summer vacation. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, we've, got a, we've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old right now. So it's fun because we spend a lot of time in the summer with them, but it's going to be very busy next summer. So to your point, like depending on what we're doing, uh, it's a, there's a different solution for different vendors and different processes throughout that. But sometimes it's it's like an outsourced vendor, for example, an accountant, um, a fund admin team. Sometimes it's an in-house solution where it's near Michael or somebody that we've hired. It, it really depends on the actual process. But to our conversation earlier about the, the concept of like A players versus B players and how that shakes out, 
we are small enough where we we aren't a private equity acquired portfolio company that's got 7,000 employees where you have to have that many people. We are small, so we can we only need a few people. So it's really important to make sure that everybody on the bus right now is a very high-end day player. So we, our management fee is almost exclusively going to pay for these these high-end A players because Michael and I, like a, it might be our first time running a fund, but we damn well will make sure that everyone else with us is is been down this road a couple of times. What are the job descriptions of of some of those players? Yep. Um, so the most critical one is the fund admin. The accountant is highly critical as well. Accounting team is highly critical. What's actually extremely critical, but is not technically inside of the fund is relationships with agents on the ground in these areas. We spend a lot of time because we're only in 21 zip codes and each zip code really has like two or three agents who kind of control the market. They are actually exceptionally critical to this because they're very likely over the life of the fund, there'll be a couple agents that we buy 10 plus homes from. So we need to ha- we need to know them well now and have very strong relationships with them or it- it'll just be, it'll be difficult for us across a whole host of reasons. So they're actually, I would say, most critical, the third most critical individual from there. After that, in terms of actually in-house, property management side is is huge, both leasing and maintenance, maintenance in particular. And for that, we've got, a combination of like an in-house system versus a, a vendor that we're working with to to manage on that side of things. So can you unpack that a little bit more? You're in 21 zip codes. How do you deal with property management? How do you deal with the asset management side? Yeah. So the property management piece is really interesting because we've spoken with a ton of property managers. They all want to charge seven and a half to 10% first month rent. And that is just not economically tenable for this particular thesis. For the seven unit home that we bought where it was C minus property and they're getting a new tenant in every 60 days, totally worth that fee. They made their money and earned it. In this case though, highly desirable home, no other rental supply on the market. We put this thing on the market. We have 72 reach outs in the first day and we have tenants offering to prepay for the first year. It's it's 48 hours worth of work every three years. And we do three-year leases because most tenants are actually there six because it's two kids, two years apart, six years to go all the way through high school. So it's hard to justify paying 10%, 7.5% for that right there. On the maintenance side of things, because we're buying these homes exclusively for from prior owner occupants, they took really good care of them to protect their equity. And we're also inspecting the bejesus out of these homes. We're not buying anything that's got anything on the clue or past issues with the roof or anything like that. We have to document that very well for reasons we can get into. But all of that to say is our maintenance expense, we've got the data from the big single family funds. They shared it with us. I have the matrix of the vintage year of the home compared to square footage and what their regression says regarding the, number, the amount of spend per door. And we aren't even any remotely close to that because our homes are just in a um, much better shape. So again, really hard to justify going to a property manager who's going to get two calls a year on the home and both calls could be resolved pretty quickly. So all of that to say on the maintenance side, we're working with a vendor that's like a in-house, but outhouse California-based dispatch company that we give them our preferred plumber, electrician, whatever per zip code. And they handle dispatch, they handle AP, they handle the tenant satisfaction on the back end. 
and we we get reports and we get we get brought in if it's above a certain price threshold. I love it. This is so cool. All right, what about the leasing? Since you're like only doing that, can you just incentivize the brokers who you're buying the house from to just go lease it the same day and give them a little clip? Or are you kind of automating that process and not even including that? So we we can do that. And we have had that happen where the, the brokers are like, hey, like I, because they're gatekeepers and they know everybody in the market. We have had that happen. We don't want to totally outsource that. And the reason why is we're buying homes that are expected entry prices about 450, it'll vary by zip code, but it's an expensive home. So if we, if tenant under, underwriting is not great, having a more expensive home sitting there with a non-paying tenant is a very significant risk. So we we need to be very careful on the tenant underwriting piece. It's it's really key to the, the overall thesis as a whole. So that's something that we want to keep pretty close to the vest. We're using a software actually also recommended to us by a different Twitter guy um, that is phenomenal. It's like next-gen tenant underwriting. They use a bunch of APIs rather than just running like a credit background check and pay stub, which people are faking pay stubs these days. What they do, what this company does is... What's the name of the company? Say Vero. They're based in Indianapolis of all places. But they, they integrate into the tenant's bank account using Played and it takes a snapshot of the tenant's bank balance over the past 365 days and says the tenant has averaged $22,000 a month at $22,000 at any given day over the past year. They've had enough money in their bank account to pay rent. You can feel comfortable in that. And then what they do is they integrate with ADP, Gusto, Paychex, all of the big payroll processors. And they say, your tenant told you they work at Google. We can, in fact, confirm their ADP has been sending them a paycheck from Google every two weeks for the past 10 years. So that's that's a very expensive solution that most local agents don't have access to, but it's not, it's not something we don't we don't want to compromise on because we want to make sure that we're we're not having great high expensive homes just kind of sitting there not not getting not getting rent. Before you go on to something else, any other cool tech data stuff that you guys are focusing on? I'm getting so excited about it because it's it, a lot of real estate companies are just old and they've been going on, you know, for 10 years, 20 years, and they're using the same systems that they've been doing. When you're starting from scratch, you could do whatever you want. So I'm curious, what are some of these other little techie data things that you've plugged into? Yeah, we've got a bunch of, we've got a bunch of random, random things that we, we use. There's another one that's an app that we, we use for quarterly inspections of the home where the tenant gets a like, hey, you need to go take pictures of these six things. And it's like self-guided, like what they need to do. Most critically in there is furnace filters. So we can, we send them furnace filters every quarter, but they have to pop them in. But it's really awesome for us because when we go to sell this portfolio, we dump in our data room, one, two, three Main Street. Here's the inspection photos from every three months for the past 12 years of this home. You can see it's been kept in pretty good shape. And oh, by the way, here's proof that we've changed the furnace filter for you. You've got a couple of years left on that HVAC. So like things like that is part of it. Another one that we use is a company called Showmajo that helps the leasing side of things. They're self-guided tours for the tenants. So we put a, when we buy the home at 9 a.m., at 10 a.m., we put, it's like a punch pad on the lock. And then when we put the house on the market, tenant can go on Zillow, say, okay, I want to go see this house. They go to the house. 
They scan a picture of the driver's license, credit card, call Shoma Joe. Shoma Joe says, okay, your temporary access code is one, two, three, four. Tenant can go on the property, see the property themselves. Uh, so we don't have to have anybody there. That's cool. Yeah, it's like really, that. really nifty. Are you thinking about the age of the home in your analysis at all? We are. It's something where we, the sooner, the younger it is, the better from like an NOI perspective, from like a just pure cash flow perspective, where insurance is going to be lower, but also maintenance risk and, and all of that. The, the caveat to that though, is we, we are upper Midwest focused and there's a lot less new construction in the upper Midwest compared to other areas in the country. And one of the key tenants to our thesis is the zip codes that we're buying in. When we check this, there are no more buildable lots left in town, which is very important because we don't want a lot of buildable lots because otherwise Pulte comes in and builds a build for rent community and supply demand imbalances get shaken up. The interesting thing that comes out from there is all the new construction is knockdowns where there someone's buying the lot, knocking it down and building up a house. But those economics only make sense if they're building a $2 million plus home. So for our 500K homes, like they do end to tend to end up being a little older as a result from there. How are you going to buy so many houses in such a short period of time? And maybe you can use that as a launch pad to just walk me through how you're underwriting these deals and kind of the systems you built to make underwriting happen much more quickly. Yeah. So on on the buying side of things, we're, we're expecting, we're, we're raising 10 million this fall. We're expecting that to turn into about 50 homes. So we've got, we've got 50 homes and it's basically like one per business day at a minimum over, over the summer. So it's a lot in terms of what that looks like from a closing perspective. And then the underwriting process on the closing perspective, I actually for about a year was running a side business that was real estate transaction coordination for agents. So I've closed about 800 transactions myself, which has been extremely helpful in building out our system on our end to, to manage this closing process. We're fortunate in that it's, it's fewer states. If we had to do this across the entire country, it'd be a total mess because every state's got a different process and title states versus attorney states and the whole nine yards. But with relatively fewer states, it's, it's easier to manage and we've, we've kind of built out a closing process system very similar to what I was using for that pesticide business. So that's one. On the on the underwriting side, that's the most that's the most interesting thing. We we've built like a custom software thing. It's it's a Google Sheets based, but it's what it does is it, it scrapes Zillow every five minutes and dumps the new listings and our target zip codes into Zillow. And then what we do is we start appending on a ton of data that is then getting pulled in from different APIs. For example, one of my favorites is there's a website called How Loud. We can plug in an address and it'll tell you how loud that address is based off of proximities to highways or like airplanes flying overhead or anything like that. We have, we have a minimum threshold on that. If it's too loud, people aren't gonna wanna live there. One, two, three, Main Street gets pulled in. How Loud API gets pulled in. We pull in. So you're basically taking a huge funnel and then narrowing it down. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Automatically. So at what point does like a human get involved to say, okay, here's my things to underwrite today? Yep. So the point that a human gets involved, that's that's me who gets involved, is (laughs) after all of our quantitative factors have already been given the thumbs up. 
So if the home is a two bedroom house, for example, it's already spit out and we're not, I'm not going to waste my time underwriting it because we aren't going to buy a two bedroom house. So all in at any given point on the market, I, I can pull it up. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 to 3,000 homes on the market in our zip codes at any given point. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 600 homes on the market at any given point that pass all of our quantitative fields that are then ready for the human overlay to then go look at it. And there's a bunch of different things that I'm checking in that process to make sure that it's a good fit. And then from there, we typically have somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 homes that pass the human overlay, which means if the price is right, we will buy these homes because they fit our buy box and the quality is what we're looking for. The, the overlay checked off. And then at that point, it's a question of, of those, say, 150 homes, how many of them are at the price point where we think we could buy it and rent it the day of closing at a profitable price to us. And if that's the case, then we pull the trigger. Okay, so you pull the trigger, then what happens? Do you have like a, a range? Like, do you have your high, low? Do you have some cool way to figure that out? Are you negotiating just old school style? What does that look like? So we, we, do have, we do have price thresholds in terms of like what like minimum or maximum would be depending on each individual home. We wanna get the home for the best price possible. But these are great zip codes, highly competitive homes. We competing on price is we're going to lose just because it's, it's a great home, great school district. Like people are going to be throwing money at it. We need to find ways to win that are outside of just throwing the biggest number out there. There's two that we've done thus far that have worked well for us. One is speed. Like we can, we can get home on the market to offer in the agent's inbox and be on the phone with the agent in 20, 30 minutes, which we're almost always the first offer, which is great. And you can put like expirations on that and things like that. But what actually works even better, and we got this from another Twitter guy, although we actually did it ourselves once out of curiosity, but it worked. And then one of our advisors, also a Twitter guy, told us that he does this in his single family fund, which is we can put on a significant lease back to the offer. So for example, we buy a home in April. In most cases in these zip codes, the seller is somebody who is selling because of a corporate relocation or something like that, but they would love their kids to be able to finish the school year and stay out the school year. Now, most buyers, these are jumbo mortgages. They can't float a jumbo mortgage with someone else staying in the home that they just put all their equity into they can't allow a lease back as long as we can. But for us, lease back is fine because we're not going to be in that home themselves. So we very frequently can buy these homes with, hey, we'll give you a six-month lease back. No big deal. We're totally okay with that. You can finish out the school year. And we've won offers actually being the lowest offer because we've been the one who can offer that lease back and they can't, or the other buyers can, the primary buyers can. What are the biggest challenges that you are focusing on as you're coming into your first major buying season? There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of different things we're thinking about. I think the biggest one is just operational complexity. There's a lot of different stuff going on. We need to have built out this system as detailed as we can ahead of time so no balls are dropped. So like all in pre, pre-closing but under contract, we have something like 17 or it's either 17 or 27, which is kind of understandably a big range, but either 17 or 27 different things that we need to get done for each home. 
and some of those have deadlines on them, like earnest money. So like we we need to make sure that our system, we try to break it as much as we can ahead of time. So when we do get into the system, uh, we do get into the buying period, we, we've already broken it every way we can and have fixed those breaks. Because I, I don't want the thing to break July 14th. I want it to break February 14th when we're practicing. I guess probably not February 14th. It'll probably be at dinner with my wife. But I want to break it ahead of time so we're good to go when we actually get to the summer. Valentine's Day is a rookie move. You'll be at home uh, scraping Zillow. <laughs> so her, her, my wife's birthday is the week before too. So it's kind of like there's always an interesting thing going on there. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I want to talk about the financing side now because that's clearly a huge important component. Obviously, setting aside where we are with interest rates now, I would think it would be incredibly challenging for you to be walking into 50 different local banks or 10 different local banks or two different local banks every time you got a new home under contract. They'd probably get overwhelmed and you just probably don't have the bandwidth. So how are you solving that problem? Yeah, we are exceptionally lucky and fortunate on the on the lending side. We have a lender that is like if Twitter found out about these guys, like they would be nonstop. You can't tell Twitter all your secrets. <laughs> I, um, yeah, we're, we're keeping, we're keeping this one to, to us for just a little bit. But we, we have a community bank that we've worked with. They've been the lender for my wife and I on the properties that we bought. So we've got a, we've got a five plus year relationship with these guys and they're phenomenal really, really awesome Midwestern bank, uh, Midwestern located community bank with a pretty significant balance sheet that can offer terms that I have not seen any other lender even come close to getting to, which is crazy because we've had a lot reach out to us via Twitter. But what these guys can offer us is just is phenomenal. And they they make the economics of this work because the terms that they're providing on the debt is just, it's, it's really hard to beat. <laughs> So have you thought about a line of credit? We have. We've thought about a line of credit. We think there's a lot of pros to a line of credit for us. We have a couple of different options on the table on, regarding the line of credit. The variable there is that local community bank. So the, the, the national guys that we've spoken with do lines of credit all day long, but they're very punitive unless you roll into their perm debt with them. The local community bank does a variant on the line of credit that's it, it close enough that I th we think we can get by with it, but it's not as, call it, fantastic as some of these other line, lines of credit are. But it comes down to, do we want to work? It, we're thinking about it of like, who, who do we want to work with from the perm side of things? And then kind of back in from there. But yeah, the line of credit is, is a very active conversation that Michael and I are, we were on the phone about it last night, actually. <laughs> It's, it's something to think about. I mean, how you structure these deals and where you get the debt from is a huge component because it you know has a tendency to suck your bandwidth down. We didn't talk about this. What is your target return? So we have it right now at 15.1 for the Class A shares and 14.6 for the Class B shares because they do get that different split above the 8% pref. We think we're being conservative, but who knows? Our um, and is that an IRR? So, like, what kind of multiple is that? Sorry, that's IRR. Yeah. So we're thinking about it. That's from an IRR perspective, and we're 
we have we have a slide on our deck on this. We we think where we kind of slot in is we think we're optimally, hopefully, a lower ceiling but higher floor type investment. Like we are going, we are not going to generate the IRR that a successful reposition does. We just we can't do that. We aren't doing value at work. We're just we're we're never going to be close to touching what that IRR could be. But for the repositions that don't hit, we should be a lot higher floor than what those could be. So we're we're we found the investors who are excited about coming in with us have had they've got some some capital and funds that are repositioning and they can get a big return real fast. And then where they're like long-term stable, like monthly cash flow distribution, distribution fit in their portfolio. So what is the Call it annual cash flow look like outside of the IRR. What do you think that tends to be? Yeah. So our our goal is we want the annual cash flow to be at the eight percent pref level or higher. So when we were underwriting one of the that last check of like is the home profitable, part of the underwriting math is the implied pref for this home is going to be. 1200 bucks a month. And we need the home to be able to support that implied pref for us to pull the trigger on it. Did you structure your funds so you can get into the promote on the cash flow if you're going to be above an eight? Yes. Good. <laughs> awesome. We've talked about it all. This is so, I love, I love what you're doing. This is a lot of fun. I can't wait to see how this whole thing rolls out. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. And I'm curious about your answer. So what is your favorite hotel? My favorite hotel. So sentimental reasons more than anything else. W Hotel on South Beach is the my favorite hotel. I started my career at BCG. My wife and I, she, she was there as well. She actually still is. They have a program called Alt Travel, where if you, you're on the road Monday through Thursday, Thursday, you fly back to your home city, but BCG will fly you to a different city of your choosing as long as the plane ticket is cheaper than the flight back to your home city. So we're, we were both based in Chicago. We were both in different, I was in DC. She was in New York. And we all traveled down to the W on South Beach as our first date. So that's that was my first date with my wife. And that will always forever be our favorite hotel as a result. Amazing. You got to come back. It's still a great hotel. It's one of the first like kind of luxury lifestyle hotels built in South Beach that was a brand and it's uh incredibly iconic so that's a good one <laughs> it's uh it's a it's a really cool really cool spot all right well i might be an investor of yours someday or or now <laughs> but i'm i'm super pumped about this thanks for coming on the podcast and where can people find out about you yeah I appreciate you having me. I'm on Twitter quite a bit. So I'm Sean O'Dowd 15. I guess I'm the fifth, 15th Irish guy out there. And then I'm, uh, my email is Sean at scholasticcapital.com. So I'm, I'm more than happy to chat real estate at any point with anyone. We didn't talk about this actually, but maybe it's not my last, I, I guess I spoke too soon. <laughs> how, how are you raising capital and how is Twitter a part of your capital raising strategy as you think about growing the business? Yeah. So the capital raise piece is interesting for us. We're, we're about three and a half weeks into the capital raise right now. We're ahead of where we thought we were going to be, which is a good place to be. But we're also kind of flying slightly blind because we've never done it before. So we've tried a wide variety of different things. I've tapped the, like the Wharton BCG network. I We've 
reached out to people who live in our target zip codes and say, hey, you clearly understand the value of this place. Like, do you want to invest in your area? And then Twitter. Twitter has been actually is more than 50% of the capital and from the fund has come from Twitter. And somebody who who saw either Michael or I on Twitter talking about what we were doing and they reached out and wanted to learn more. So of the other categories, I guess it seems like Twitter's the most common source right now. Of the other two, what's been more impactful, kind of your educational network or local people in the market? Local people in the market. And how are you getting to those people? Variety of different ways. The The one that's actually worked best is going on LinkedIn and searching for people who have their location set to the town that we live in and then reaching out to them via their email or using... I, I got a property rated subscription and then went to the zip code sorted by high to low and equity and house. And then looked up the individual's email based off their name from their property radar data and just started emailing them, which I mean, for we started with the Chicago area. So it was, on, it was all a bunch of Citadel executives, to be honest. <laughs> I was just like emailing people from Citadel, basically. <laughs> Did did any of them invest? Did you crack uh, not not yet. It's, I'm I'm honestly not expecting it because I think they're all in your neck of the woods now, and they're all they're all investing by you now. Probably, but the stuff is heating up pretty quick. So, I think it's more, you know, real estate's just as much as the strategy as it is the location. The location is important, but for residential, the strategy is so important. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.